So if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard the statistics that the fastest growing religious group in America are what's called religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns. People who don't have any religious affiliation at all, that's the fastest growing group. Uh, in the last 20 years, the number of, quote, practicing Christians who say that their faith is really, really important to them has fallen to just one in four Americans. And while we're all familiar with the concept of millennials drifting away from the church, because of course millennials ruin everything, right? That's the whole meme. Uh, sorry, everybody, about that, about ruining napkins or whatever the latest thing that we're accused of ruining is. Anyway, we all get it. Millennials are leaving the church. But what's, what's starting to become really apparent is that there's a huge number of Generation Z, that's the generation 25 and younger, who they're not even a part of the church at all. They've never even stepped foot in the church. And so the cultural landscape is changing really, really quickly. Now, when you hear that uh, data, about, especially about younger people, the common response to all of that is, well, just give them time. Give them time because, we, you know, when those kids grow up and have kids of their own, they'll find their way back into church. Except that's not actually what's happening. That's not what's happening. When you, when you see study after study looking at these trends of, of where things are headed, it really does start to look like the American church is in free fall. Now sure, some churches are, are growing here and there, but, but honestly, what's really going on, it seems, is that they're really just trading members back and forth, right? While the overall number of, of Christ followers continues to dwindle. I believe that the church in our country is in for a pretty shocking wake-up call in the next 10 years. And I also believe that if we don't ask ourselves why, why this is happening, and do something about it, then I think we're headed down a road of irrelevancy too. So, let's ask why. Let's ask why, that's what this whole series is about. We're kicking it off, the, the credibility gap, and we are gonna talk for the next five weeks very honestly about how the church is perceived in our culture. And, and we're gonna search scripture about how we can respond. I'm excited about this series. I actually have been looking forward to this for quite a while because I believe that by talking openly about these issues, we can actually start to understand not just how to be more relevant, we all wanna be more relevant, but, but beyond that, we can start to understand perhaps what the next chapter of Grace Church is actually gonna look like as we respond to the needs of a hurting world. So let's, let's get into this. Let's start with this question. What is the credibility gap? And I'm gonna use an illustration that my dad actually used years ago. Uh, my dad was the founding senior pastor here and he had an illustration that he used a lot to, uh, to describe, first of all, what is the gospel in, in as, as easy terms as possible to understand. And so he used an illustration of something called the sin gap. And the idea is really, really obvious. It's like, okay, there's a human here, God is over on this side, and this chasm here is sin. Now, the reason that this is a chasm is because our human sin, our, our uh, self-focused uh, actions, our rebellion against God's intentions for the world has separated us from God, and we, as humans, are incapable of bridging that gap alone. There's nothing that we can do that's gonna overcome the damage that's been wrought by our sin. However, God, in his grace, sent his son Jesus to, to bring us across that gap if we choose to follow him. And so, as the illustration goes, you've got Jesus who uh, stands in this gap and gives us a path over, okay? So this right here, this is the gospel. This is how someone makes a choice to follow Jesus and be reconciled with God. 
And that's all good, except there's another gap. There's another gap that prevents this person from even getting to that point of decision at all. And I'm making it very large for the sake of effect. But here, and also because the word is really long that I'm going to write. Uh, so here we go. Credibility. See, this has been a challenge. Uh, there's a lot of I's. Uh, B, I, L, I, D, Y. <laughs> credibility. Yes. This is the credibility gap. And what this represents is the fact that there are, you know, there are decisions that need to be made at this point if someone's going to cross the sin gap, but there are a lot of things that are standing in the way of someone even getting to that point of decision in the first place. There's a lot of things that would prevent this person from even asking the question of even considering following Jesus. So this gap, the credibility gap, that is what we're going to talk about in this series. What is it? What makes it wider? And what can we do to actually start to close it? And this is important for us to talk about because remember, this is not just a matter of, of us being misunderstood. This is not a matter of church attendance. This is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death for those who we are called to reach in Jesus' name. This matters, and so we are going to talk about it. Now, before we dive into the topic itself, I've got to make two things clear right out of the gate. Uh, I just want to make sure we are on the same page first. We're going to be talking a lot about how Christians are perceived in this world, but, and, and you know, and what Grace Church can do about it, but we are not, we are not going to be pointing the finger at any other churches or any other Christians. This is not about them, okay? This is about us. Now, I do happen to think that every church needs to be having these conversations right now. I think this is important, but we are not uh, accusing anyone else of anything. We are, we are looking at ourselves and what can we as individuals and we as a church do about the perceptions uh, that are around us. We've got to take an honest look at the cultural realities that we're facing, and we've got to acknowledge the reputation that the church has in our community, knowing that really all we can change and all we can do is respond as ourselves. So again, not pointing the finger, we are looking in the mirror, all right? That's the first one. The second thing that I want to make really clear is that some of this stuff that we're going to talk about is probably going to sting a little bit, okay? It's going to be a little, it's going to ouch, it's going to hurt us a little bit because nobody likes to think that their faith is, is uh, seen as ridiculous or harmful or, or misguided. Nobody likes that, right? And so when we hear those kinds of criticisms, the easiest thing for us to do is to just kind of tune it out, right? Try to, try to drown out the noise or, or even worse, to try to just huddle up with other Christians who aren't going to criticize us and, and then we can feel more comfortable and safe. That's what our reaction is normally uh, to do in situations like that. But we're not going to do that in this series. We are going to stay there and we are going to look right square in the face at what these uh, perceptions are of the faith that we have. Uh, you know, it is easy to put up a wall, but we're not going to do that here, even if the, the accusations feel unfair to us. Because look, we're going to stay in the room with this stuff because the lost, the lost, they're not going to stumble into our church, right? They're not going to just one day wake up and magically find themselves having faith in Jesus if they believe that Christianity is a problem. This is just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. 
So if we want to see the lives of the people that we care about who don't know Jesus in our lives, that our friends, our family, our, our uh, community, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, if we want to see their lives transformed by the love of Jesus, then we've got to stay in the room with some stuff that's going to make us uncomfortable. Okay? So let's talk about what makes up the credibility gap. What widens that gap? Over the next five weeks, we are going to look at five specific perceptions uh, that people have of the church. And these are perceptions that, frankly, I hear over and over and over again. I read them online. I hear them from some of my friends who have walked away from, from faith in Jesus. I hear them from even people here at Grace who, because of what's going on in the world, they, they're starting to question their own faith and their own uh, perception of the church. As a part of this, I actually, to research for this, I, I asked our staff, to reach out to people in their lives who struggle with the church or have a, a bad perception of faith in the church. And I asked them, ask your friends, what, what's their number one reason for mistrusting the church? And I got back, let me tell you, hundreds, hundreds of comments. And they all really filtered into these same five perceptions. So that's what we're gonna talk about. Here, here they are. Uh, this is what I hear. First of all, um, this is probably no surprise to you, uh, I hear that Christians are hypocritical. Christians are hypocritical. They say that they believe certain things and then they live another way. They, they live in opposition to the things they say they believe. I also hear uh, that Christians are idolatrous. Now, nobody would actually use that word Next week, I'll explain what I mean with that, but, but essentially what I mean by this is that Christians are perceived as having misplaced allegiances. You know, they say that they, they're you know, committed to Jesus, number one, but it's clear by their life that they're actually committed to things like money or power or, or wealth or success or uh, cultural ideologies that are in vogue at the moment. That's, that's the perception. We're idolatrous. Another thing I hear is that Christians have harmful theology. This is a pretty broad one, but it's essentially anything from escapist beliefs of, about the end times or, or theologies that seem to ignore large swaths of scripture or, or the belief in a, in a judgmental, bitter, vengeful, angry God that some people look at and they think that's just harmful. That's just bad for our culture. Get this, one in five non-Christians in our culture today, one in five think that the church is not just you know, me, you know, weird and, and something to be cast aside. They actually believe, one in five believe that the church is actively damaging to society. Okay, we've got to deal with the fact that that is a perception of the church. Another one I hear uh, is that Christians are judgmental. Judgmental. Uh, Christians condemn people, they exclude people, they hold people they don't agree with at arm's length. They judge. And finally, I hear that Christians are dogmatic dogmatic, and that means that they, you know, they believe things without evidence, they, they don't think rationally, they're unwilling to, to even consider any other perspectives than their own. In one way or another, these, these five themes keep coming up. They keep coming up. So we're going to address each one of them in turn. Now again, you hear that kind of stuff, and it can be painful to hear, right? You hear that, and you think, it's not, that's not true for me. I'm not, I'm not dogmatic. I'm not, I'm not judgmental, right? And it's not true of my own faith. And, and that may be entirely true, but we've got to acknowledge that it is a real reality that people perceive this about Christians, uh, whether, we, whether we like it or not, whether we like it or not. And so, yeah, we're going to look at this square in the face, and we're going to ask ourselves, what do we do about it? What do we do? I think it's going to be an interesting series. 
I also think, and I just want to keep bringing us back to this, the reason that we're doing this, if we take this seriously as a church, it is not just to, to be more relevant. It is about bringing people to experience the love of Jesus. That is what this is about. And I think that if we really work hard together at, at tackling this credibility gap, we may just see people in our lives that we care about transformed in ways that right now they definitely do not think is possible. So that's what this is about. And that's why we're doing it. So. Let's dive in and talk about this first perception, the idea that Christians are hypocritical. Most of the comments that I've heard about this particular perception is, is that the idea that, you know, Christians say we believe in a God of self-giving love, but we act in ways that are self-interested and greedy and, and that sort of thing. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, but we seem to not want to lift a finger to help the poor or the marginalized. You know, we, we preach about a God of godly generosity, but when is the worst time to be a server at a restaurant? Anybody? Anybody? Sunday after church, that's right, because that's when the Christians go to church and they are the worst tippers. Can I get an amen from anyone in the service industry? Yes. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so we say all these things are true about our God, about our beliefs, about what, and then we live totally differently. It's hypocrisy. There's a very real perception that Christians talk about love and compassion, but we don't live it. That's what people see. And I bet if you asked people in your life who, you know, don't, <clears throat> don't follow Jesus and have problems with the church, I bet they would bring up hypocrisy too as one of the examples of why they don't believe it, why the credibility gap is there. So whether this is a fair perception or not for you individually, we've got to talk about what we can do about it as a church. How can we respond to this? Well, the good news, if you can, I guess, could you call it good news? The good news is that this is nothing new. Hypocrisy in the church has been around since the very beginning. So I guess it's good news because we know there's stuff in the Bible about it. The, in fact, the New Testament authors have to talk a lot about hypocrisy. So let's look at one of those examples in the book of James. The book of James is a great example of uh, one of the New Testament authors trying to, trying to get people to think differently about how they're living. By the way, while you're turning there, we're going to go to James 1, chapter, or, sorry, chapter 1, verse 19 to start. While you're turning there, I just want to just let you know, next week, or next weekend, February 13, 14, I'm going to be sharing with you a really significant announcement about the future of Grace Church. Uh, it's very, very significant. It's going to affect all of us. And so I am uh, asking you to please be sure to uh, be here or tune in to be able to hear uh, what's coming because it is going to be a very, very significant, significant announcement. Okay? Thank you. I know you're all curious now. Please come back. Okay. Let's talk about this. Uh, James 1, verse 19. This is what he says. <clears throat> Understand this, my brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and you don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and then you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, well, then God will bless you 
for doing it. Okay, so we'll stop there for a second. James is talking about hypocrisy in the church here. Believing one thing, saying one thing, but then doing something else. And he says in verse 21, and this is, this is the key, he says that God has planted his word in our hearts, but that we can't just listen to that word, we have to actually do what it says. Now, that verse was, you know, drilled into me as a, as a good, you know, upstanding young evangelical kid in the evangelical subculture. I heard that verse all the time. Uh, there was like a little, even a, a chant to memorize it. It was like, uh, do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. I remember that so vividly from my childhood. So I understood exactly what that meant because, because it was it was what was drilled into me. And what it meant was, do all the good Christian things and live in a right way so you don't do anything bad. Like, don't smoke, don't drink, don't even think about someone on the opposite sex. Like, this is, this is basically obvious, you know, how to be a good Christian rule 101. I mean, I still haven't said the F word, so it, it obviously stuck with me. Uh, you know, do what it says. But let me ask this. Is that what James is actually saying here? Is James saying, you know what, if you're going to be a good Christian, you've got to do all the right Christian things. You've got to obey all the right sort of uh, rules of behavior. Is that what he's getting at when he says you've got to listen to the word and do what it says? I don't think it actually is. Let me, let me explain why I say that. Because what we're about to read, James goes into giving some examples of what this looks like, listening to the word and doing what it says. So let me read you this. Uh, he goes on in verse 26. Here's, an, here's his example. If you claim to be religious, but you don't control your tongue, well, then you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, eh, you can, you can stand over there or, or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Skip down to verse 14. He goes on, he says, what good is it? What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do you? Do you see? Faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Hmm. Okay, so let me try to recap what James is saying here. He says, first of all, the word of God is planted in our hearts. Then he says, doing what it says means things like controlling your tongue, not lashing out in anger, as, as, as he says in another part of his, of his letter. Uh, it means caring for orphans and widows. It means avoiding favoritism of the wealthy. It means providing others with food and clothing when they need it. In short, doing what the Word of God says means acting compassionately, acting out of love. Now, does that sound like a list of moral, uh, you know, behavior regulations to you? It doesn't to me. No, it sounds more like a, 
like a lifestyle. It, it's almost like a posture, a way of living in the world, of responding to the things around you. So, so what's going on here? Because isn't the word of God where we get all the list of rules? Well, I'm going to explain something to you, and I'm going to say something right now. When we talk about the word of God, I'm about to say something that's probably going to get me some angry emails, but I think it's important for us to recognize. When we say the word of God, that does not mean the Bible. Now, hold on. I know it does. It does. Don't, don't hit send yet because, hold on, I'll explain. I'll come back to it. Yes, it is the word of God, but it's not, it doesn't completely capture what it means to say the word of God. When the writers of the New Testament talked about the word of God, they were trying to use a phrase that had a ton of different you know, significance and meaning built into it. When they talked about the word of God, what they were trying to get across was the idea of God's will, his, his desires, his teachings, his character being enacted in our world. God's word, God's, God's voice shaping creation, uh, you know, having his creative intentions uh, reflected in the world around us. You could say it this way. The word of God is who God is, being expressed in our creation. It's, it's God's voice shaping our world. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the law of Moses was called the word of God because it was God's voice shaping the people of Israel and trying to, to help to, to create a nation that was based on his desires for the world. Or when you look a little bit later in the Old Testament, the prophets, the prophets spoke what they called the word of God because they were sharing uh, what, what God's heart was to get the people of Israel back on track. And when we come to the New Testament, you also hear the phrase word of God describing something. You know what it is? It's describing Jesus himself. Because you see, when Jesus came into our world, he wasn't just something God was doing. He was the intentions of God in this world. He was God shaping reality. When you open the Gospel of John, he just immediately starts his Gospel by describing Jesus as the Word of God. That's how he described him. So what I'm trying to get across here is that, is that the Word of God as a phrase, it does not mean a book it means God's intentions. It, it, it's not a book, it's a person, it's Jesus Christ. He's the fullest embodiment of the word of God in our lives. So when we talk about what is planted in our heart, it's not just a list of rules, it is a person, Jesus Christ, who is living within us. Jesus and all that he represented, think about this, Jesus who cared for orphans and widows in their distress, who avoided favoritism, who fed the hungry and acted with compassion and controlled his tongue. All the things that James describes here. The word of God is not a list of rules. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. So, okay, let's get back to that operating question here. Why do people think that Christians are hypocritical? Well, based on what we're reading in James, I would say it this way. We're hypocrites because we have the word of God. We have Jesus Christ planted in our hearts, and yet we still find ways to treat his teachings as optional. Right? Like, like uh, love your enemies. Nah. Like, okay, nah, I don't think so. Uh, turn the other cheek. Not today, Jesus. I don't, don't feel like it. Uh, don't don't uh, lust. Don't be greedy. You know, don't, don't, uh, don't be judgmental. We're like, uh, maybe just a little. Just a little bit of hate. Like, can I, can I hate somebody? Can I, can, I, can I please just a little bit? You know, we treat Jesus' teachings as completely optional. 
if we claim to follow Jesus, we say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ, it cannot just be a label, can it? It can't just be a bumper sticker. It has to be a way of life, a posture, an all-encompassing identity. Think about this. If Christ, if the word of God is planted in our hearts, if he is within us, then we should be living in a way that, that it's basically like he's controlling our hands and feet and mouth so that everywhere we go, it's like Jesus is going to those places and doing those things, right? That's how it should be. That's how our faith should be lived out in this world. Compassion and mercy and peace and joy and self-giving love welling up from that word of God planted in our hearts. That's what James means when he says, don't just listen to the word. Do what it says. Do what it says. So, there's a perception that some Christians are hypocrites. Or maybe some people think all Christians are hypocrites. Grace Church, here's what I'm gonna ask us to do. Let's prove them wrong. Let's prove them wrong. And you know what? If there's other Christians out there that are not a part of grace and they are acting hypocritically, well then let's work twice as hard. Let's show that the word of God is genuinely planted in our hearts. Now, here's, the, here's some good news. And this is kind of one of the things that's been really encouraging to me as I've worked on this series. I think that as a whole, Grace Church, we are a bit ahead of the curve on some of this stuff, right? If, if the idea of Christians being hypocritical is that we're not compassionate, well, we as a church, we kind of are. You know, we, we show compassion through our care center. We, we have this incredible ministry for kids with disabilities. We care for, for you know, orphans and, and uh, foster families and, and teens and, that are struggling. We, we have open conversations about issues like racism and injustice because we care. So I would say, you know, we're far from perfect. We've got a lot of work to do, but the good news is that if, if, if I was asked by someone who was outside of the church, I could confidently say that at least we are trying. We're trying to be compassionate. So I say, I say let's just keep growing in that as a church. We're on the right track. Let's just keep growing. Let's do together what, what the author of Hebrews says. He says, let us think of ways. Let's be creative. Think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let's be known. Let's have Grace Church be known as a church that cares. Let's be known as a church that, that has compassion on our world. Let's be known as a church of love. Because maybe if we do, if we do, we could start to change a few minds. But of course, we also have to keep growing as individuals, don't we? Because there's only so much that the reputation of a single church body can do. It's really in the conversations and the day-to-day -day interactions and the, the way that we live in our world. That's where the real credibility gap exists, right? So let's look for ways as individuals to continue growing in this compassion and love as well. None of us wants our faith to be, as James says in verse 17, dead and useless. Nobody wants that. So let me, let me ask this question. What do we do? No, I'll say it this way. What do you do? What are you gonna do to bring your faith to life right now? To close that credibility gap? Well, if, if we had time, I'd sit down and we could talk about this and evaluate your life. And I, that's, that's a lot of cups of coffee for us to have those conversations. I can't do that. I don't know you. But God does. And so what I'd like to do is give you some space to hear from him 
I'm gonna give you a few moments in, in just a second to, uh, to close your eyes. I'm gonna give you some questions to ask yourself about your own life, and we're gonna invite the Holy Spirit to speak, to, to bring things to light. I'm gonna ask three questions or three sets of questions, and I believe that God will put one specific action in your mind. And I want you to think of that, hold on to that, and I'll tell you what to do with it in a moment. So here's what we're gonna do. Let's get in a posture of prayer. If you wanna close your eyes, please do. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak right now. Father God, you know our desire is to live like you in this world. Obviously, we're all imperfect, we struggle, but Father, we want to grow in this, in our compassion, in our self-giving love. And so Father, I ask that in this moment, for everyone who's hearing my voice, whether they're in this room, whether they're online, whether they're watching this someday in the future, I pray, Father, that in this moment, your Holy Spirit would speak and reveal to us something we can do right now to begin closing that credibility gap and demonstrating your love in this world. So speak, Father, speak, Spirit, we are listening. Okay, with your eyes still closed, ask yourself this question. How have I acted out of selfishness or favoritism or a lack of compassion recently? And how can I make it right? Another question. In the past few months, how have I ignored the needs of the suffering in some way? And how might I act differently right now? The third question, since Christ is within me, what is one act of self-giving love that I can do right now to show that my faith is alive? Now friends, I believe that in this moment, the Spirit has given you something, maybe multiple things, but at least one action that you can take in this way. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. This week, you have one homework assignment. Do it. <laughs> that action, whatever it is, that thing that the Holy Spirit put on your heart, go and do it this week. Do it, because remember, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, is planted in your hearts. He can live through you, so go and do it. And I believe that as you do, you'll start to watch as that credibility gap begins to close.